and what an amazing course, proving you can never know what might happen here at Wingfoot Golf Club, where history lives. Oh my God, please, come on. It's gonna be a hard shot anyway. You're such an asshole. Oh no! Oh Sammy, you just hammered that. You idiot! I gotta be honest with you, I, I, I have no idea what I'm doing right now. Two years ago, Golf Digest produced a video where I played three holes at Wingfoot Golf Club a few weeks before the U.S. Open under tournament conditions. 7,500 yards, Savage Rough, the works. I'm an 11 handicap, and as you can imagine, it didn't go well. I didn't come close to hitting a green in regulation. Go! Wow. Not even close. Laid this out over badly on one horrifically embarrassing wedge shot. I don't even need you to tell me what I did wrong, because I know what I did wrong and was frankly fortunate to walk away with three double bogeys. Guts, guts. You will never have seen a grittier double bogey than that. It was a fun video and viewers had two common reactions. Wingfoot looks pretty hard, but how the hell does this guy work at Golf Digest? Which was kind of harsh, I'll admit, because I'm not a golf pro or even one of my many colleagues who played in college. I didn't start playing golf seriously until I was in my 20s, yet, I've always held firm to the belief that my experience as a golfer is closer to the experience of many of the people who come to Golf Digest on a regular basis. We have plenty of bad days, we have some good days, and on our best days, on our best days we think about breaking 80. I'm Sam Wyman, and this week on Local Knowledge, that's what we're talking about, breaking 80. Maybe you've already done it and it's not a big deal, maybe you're not even ready to think about it. In golf, it's this sort of graduation, and in the case of my colleague Shane Ryan and I, it's a milestone now staring us in the face practically every time we play. Neither Shane nor I have ever broken 80, but this summer, for whatever reason, we've both come closer than ever. And that's led to all sorts of questions that we've asked ourselves and others about why it hasn't happened yet, what we need for it to happen, and why we want it to happen so damn badly in the first place. All right, this is Shane, a little uh, post-round analysis. I just played at a course called Okanichi here in North Carolina. Mostly uh, miserable today, occasionally embarrassing. I don't think I was a ton of fun to be around for my friends, but um, something funny happened on the 15th tee. I found something and started playing really well and managed to salvage an 89 kind of by the skin of my teeth. So I think this was just a, a really good example of the range of emotions you can feel on the golf course, down in the dumps, whiny for, for a good chunk of it, and now somehow I'm feeling great. So certainly no closer to breaking 80, but happy. There you go. Before we dive in further, a quick programming note. This episode indeed has a decent amount of conversation between two middle-aged golfers talking about their own struggles on the course, which, come to think of it, is the sort of thing that gives my wife hives. But it's really about more than that, because it's about the common challenges faced by a lot of golfers. We talk to pros, experts, and even some of the people we play with to help crystallize the common hurdles a lot of golfers face and how we might get over them. This idea of breaking 80, on some level, it is so arbitrary and trivial for grown men with careers and families, and yet... I think both of us are so wrapped up in it. And I guess my first question is, why do we care so much about it? 
Yeah, it's funny, Sam. I was thinking about this the other day and, you know, obviously the most important things in my life are the ones you just mentioned, family and career. But then I think I need something else. And I think that thing I need is something to chase, something kind of competitive to work toward that is maybe totally trivial, totally arbitrary. Uh, I will never make money from golf, but I need something that I can say, yeah, well, this is the thing I'm working on and kind of fuels me uh, outside of career and outside of family. And for me, you know, it, it serves that purpose. It fills my hours, it fills my brain in a way that I think, you know, if I didn't have something like that there, I don't know what would fill the vacuum, but I don't think it would be great. And so, so it's really important for me to have that, I think. It's funny. I was playing the other day with my my two boys and we were pulling in to the after the round was over and just as a joke just to get a rise out of the people who were standing around I was like ah 73 I missed a few putts down that stretch <laughs> and I would love it's so pathetic I would love one day for that not to be a joke that I want that level of admiration from other golfers and it you know every book I've read about golf and self help which are often the same books and they're all about how it shouldn't be about anything other than yourself. And yet for some reason, it's important to me. You had mentioned that we both started playing golf relatively late in life. You even later than me. And I'm wondering what role do you think that plays in all of this? Yeah. Well, I will say first off that I like it. Uh, I like the fact that I have something to get better at. Uh, I know there's more of a ceiling for me because people who started when they're six years old, it just kind of gets in your blood. And, you know, I think if you look at some of our, our colleagues, they have already played their best golf because they were hyper-focused on this. Maybe they played in college. There was a time in their lives where this is really like a huge focus of their lives. For us, you and I hopefully will break 80 one day. We can be pretty safe uh, in the knowledge that our best golf is ahead of us, which, you know, for me, I'm going to be turning 40 in a couple months. That, you know, that's kind of neat, I think. And I like being able to have something I can improve at but with really no pressure about what my ceiling is. I never have to go shoot 68 and it's probably never going to happen. And I think it's just something that, again, to go back to what I said earlier, it's something for me to chase in a way that is indefined. There's not a ton of pressure on it, even though, you know, if I ever have a real chance of breaking 80, I'm going to feel incredible, immense pressure. I will, you know, be shaking, but uh, it's just this thing that can kind of steadily go in our lives. And I like that. The guys you play with, like, what do they make you better? Do they make you worse? What role do they play in your, pardon the expression, journey? Yeah, I think, you know, I, I tend to gravitate toward people who are not like me uh, playing golf, who are very calm and generally positive. Now that's, you know, in golf, that's, you know, the, we say positive, everybody's negative and everybody swears after a missed shot. Um, but it is interesting to hear um, from my friends who are in my head more steady uh, what it's like to play with somebody like myself, who I consider a very emotional golfer. In fact, one of the people I play with most often is my friend, Matt Coots. And at least on the surface, temperamentally, he is pretty much the direct opposite of me. So it was interesting to ask him uh, basically what it's like to play with me. Uh, so we were talking about this earlier today, but I like taking golf really serious even though I know like deep down it is not serious and I'm not that good. Like I'm a like high single digits handicap. You're on a quest to break 80. 
Like neither of us have a future in playing golf, <laughs> but it is what I love about golf is that you can always strive for new goals. And I love that part of golf. And that's definitely your passion is taking it really seriously and shooting <laughs> for lofty goals and getting really frustrated when it doesn't happen. But like, I also enjoy that frustration too. You may be a little more external with your frustration, you know, right, like, right. not like you're throwing clubs all the time, but you're not throwing clubs none of the time. Yeah. Um, and I, yeah, I like that. Like, I want you to play well, but it's, it is also kind of hilarious when you don't. Play well. <laughs> <laughs> they are both good. The highs are high and the lows are high. It's, it's just, it's just we just don't want boring, just like, you know, low nineties, nothing really happened. Right. At all. Hey, Local Knowledge listeners, I wanted to make sure you're all aware of Golf Digest Plus, because if you're enjoying this podcast, I promise you'll enjoy Golf Digest Plus. In short, Golf Digest Plus will give you unlimited access to all of Golf Digest's premium content, yep, the entire website completely unlocked, along with exclusive reviews of over 18,000 courses nationwide and early access to our newsletters, all for only $1.99 a month. And if you'd like, Golf Digest Plus provides offers that includes receiving a magazine subscription, along with Golf Digest Schools, our instructional hub that includes over 750 golf video lessons from some of the best coaches and players in the world. So check it out. Go to golfdigest.com backslash plus to learn more. All right, I need this in the fairway. So bad. Ugh. That is so bad. Everything I told you to do, I didn't do either. It's funny. I use this as my stock answer, and it comes across as an excuse. So I want to be clear that I'm not making an excuse here. But one thing about me and starting the game late in life, and for me, it was really just after college, it was that. Um, I grew up playing other sports and at a, in an age when those sports were more or less instinctive, if, you know, you swung a tennis racket, you hit a baseball, you skated, and you didn't really think about the consequences or certainly how you looked. And I started playing golf at an age where I had certain expectations of me as an athlete. And the reason why I say this is such a lame excuse is that plenty of athletes start golf late in life and they've already surpassed me. So, um, but I started at a point where I thought of myself as an athlete. I thought of myself as someone who's pretty competent. And I was so fixated on not looking dumb when I started playing that I started to adjust my swing accordingly. So I would always make decent contact and not have these wild misses or big steep chunks um, or slicing it out of bounds. And as a result, my game, which people come to learn is sort of pathetically about managing my lack of distance. Um, and it, I think it all races back to that. Like I never learned to swing hard at the ball. Only now at age 47, am I actually starting to give myself the permission to start swinging harder as opposed to my two boys who both started, you know, ages five or six. And their first thought was swing as hard as you can and we'll worry about where the ball goes later. And that, in my view, is such a healthier and better way to start playing. The worst part about me saying any of this is that it validates the feedback I get all the time from the guys I play with, and that includes my number one golf rival, Joe. I've written about Joe before. He loves to talk about how I don't swing hard enough or how I overthink the game, 
it literally never stops. And so when I asked Joe to provide some honest commentary on my quest to break 80, it was like he was salivating. A freer swing to develop more speed for you on uh, on your tee balls and, and your irons for that matter. I think you still you still lack the ability to swing freely because in that cluttered mind of yours and the nine million swing thoughts that are that are bouncing around in your skull is not allowing you to to just let it loose. Um, with that being said, I should mention that I asked Joe for like just a brief comment and he went on like this for about 10 minutes. If you're a grown man, you should have a swing speed that would be adequate to get a speeding ticket in a school zone. And you do not. So I look um, at when did this become for you an actual realistic goal and how close have you come? So I, I think it's it became realistic only this year. Um, I, I had a weird thing where I started playing golf in 2014, played for a couple of years, then discovered tennis. And so I stopped playing golf completely. Then I tore my ACL playing tennis, gained 20 pounds. And now, you know, now golf is the thing. Uh, and so it's been about two and a half to three years since being back. And this year I bettered my previous score from pre-ACL, uh, which was an 85. And I've shot 84 twice. And I, I think the moment that I maybe had a realistic shot was the day when I needed to go one over over the last three holes to get 79. And it kind of snuck up on me and I was like, oh, wow, I really have a chance. And the moment I thought about it, um, I just had a really terrible 16th hole. I think I triple bogeyed it, um, but I'm almost, almost there. So it, it's like sort of on the precipice, but any given day that I go out there, you would never bet on Shane Ryan to break 80. It's just, it's just a numbers game where give me 15 rounds. And I think maybe I'll have a good chance to do it once. So I spoke for this to Brett McCabe, who's a sports psychologist. who works with a number of top players. And I asked him, you know, why is this such a hurdle for me if I've kind of hovered around the number? And he talks about the fact that when you suddenly create a number, a barrier, you're creating all these expectations and suddenly everything becomes about that. I think anytime you have a, an artificial number, right, that defines success or failure, you're going to have more pressure around it. We saw it with Roger Bannister on the four minute mile for many, many years. And then once it was shattered, it was broken week after week, and now it's standard for the four-minute mile of high schoolers, right? Pressure increases when you're trying to hit an artificial number. And shooting 80 or breaking 80 on a golf course is an artificial number. And so the number is so arbitrary, but yet we place so much value on it, particularly for players who want to see themselves as single-digit handicappers, which is a, a sign of pride and, and obviously a, a great accomplishment. So that 80 becomes more pressure. So now a player's not playing the shot they have at hand. They're playing the shot at hand, so what it means against this artificial number. And, you know, we can also tell golfers, just play like you don't know what the score is, but that's impossible. So my question for you is, how often when you are playing, do you suddenly become conscious of, of the number that is possible, and how does it affect you? Immediately, um, from the first time I hit a good drive in the fairway, and I think I could make par here i think you know if you make par here then 79 is possible and it's a matter sam for me of knowing who i am and admitting who i am which is somebody who brain works on overdrive i can't help it i i am like sort of mathematically inclined numbers add up quickly in my head and so at some point you know my mom would always say don't think about the number you're doing yourself no favors you're putting pressure on yourself 
And at some point I have to say, okay, who you are is somebody who's going to think about the numbers. You can't help it. So let's go by, you know, let's proceed with the truth of who Shane Ryan is and, and just decide that I'm going to be somebody who will constantly consider when 79 is within reach. It will add some pressure, but that's okay. You're going to have to succeed through pressure anyway. And it's not realistic for me to sort of blindly go through the round and then after 18, add it up and say, oh, wow, I shot 78 today. It's never going to happen. So let's not try and go for a goal that is unrealistic. Well, that's something that actually Brett McCabe also referenced. One of the things that I had said to him was, I'm that type of person who, when I have a good round going and I'm vaguely aware that it's a possibility, I don't want to talk about it. People will say, oh, you have a good round going. I'll say, shut the hell up. (laughs) And I don't want to think about it. And what he said was that's entirely counterproductive for the very reasons you described, that we're not wired that way to just not think about something. And so you might as well just embrace it. Well, the harder you try not to think about it, the more you're going to think about it, right? And the white elephant, our thought suppression, you know, mentality. But the reality of scoring is that you know where you are at any given moment. You know if you're playing good. You may not know the exact number. Some people will say that, but you know where you are. And so to me, what I'd rather a player do is go ahead and acknowledge it. You are playing a competitive experience. You are, um, you know, competing against something, but you're actually competing against a golf course. So what I like players to do is just acknowledge, yes, I know where I'm at. Now, use that as a trigger to get themselves back into their process and play what that shot is. So while it is important to accept yourself, to understand yourself, and these are certainly big parts of my process, it is equally important to know those things about yourself that are holding you back that you can change. And the person who opened my eyes to this was Carl Kimball. Carl is the director of golf at Hillendale Golf Course here in Durham, North Carolina. He's my teacher, a very good one, I think, former PGA Tour pro. And I thought his perspective on this was really neat. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, your nature is, is to go fast. And, and when you're trying to do something, you have a tendency to go faster and swing harder. Um, but when I'm working with students, even on the driving range, it's, it's like you. I mean, you talk about a Gatlin gun. I mean, you want to hit a ball, hit a ball, hit a ball, hit a ball. There's no training there. And so, again, even with human nature, it's to swing faster, swing harder, you know, because we're trying to make something happen. Um, and to give you the perfect example, what he told me one time with, with my golf swing, because I was... You know, I was young, I was swinging hard. He says, I want you to take a watermelon and get it inside a house, but the problem is the door's locked. Now, there's a keyhole, and you can see in the house that keyhole, and for some reason you thought, well, if you could push that watermelon through that keyhole, you'd get it inside the house. And eventually you probably can, but the problem is when you do get to open the door, it's no longer a watermelon on the other side of the door. We do that with our golf swing. Okay, we try to force it so much and, and swing hard, swing fast, make things happen so much that, that we, we're not really training a golf swing at all. Um, you and I, Sam, are both people who have written about anger in the past uh, as it relates to sports performance in general. Um, I'm curious with you, what do, do you have like an anger policy on the course? If you have a bad day when you feel like you should be doing better, how long will that stick with you? You know, what, what role does this play sort of in your psyche at this point in golf? I have moments of anger i don't think that's the predominant problem i think my mind is definitely the predominant problem in the sense that i when i start playing poorly 
I started saying, when is this going to stop? I got to stop playing poorly. And if I ever attach it to score, I'll compound the problem because I'll say, oh my God, I double bogeyed the first two holes. By my amateur arithmetic, I need to be play the next two holes in two under or whatever to have a chance. And so I start creating expectations. My biggest problem is not so much anger. It's like the the narrative of what should be happening. There's a great book that our colleague Alex Myers gave to me called Extraordinary Golf about this very idea. And one of the things that it talks about is how golfers have this tendency to believe that what happens in the past is a predictor to what's going to happen in the future. And that is applicable shot by shot, whereas you know you hit you chunk an iron here, you're going to chunk your next iron. But it's also applicable to just rounds. Like I'm playing poorly, I'm going to play poorly tomorrow. And so that is definitely a thing for me. I do get that initial, you know, rush of rage, you know, when something goes wrong, I think that's okay. Uh, and I think I'm pretty good at not letting it affect the rest of my life or even in that moment not blowing it up into something that becomes embarrassing for me. Uh, that said, there have been one or two moments where I did not regulate in time and ended up doing something pretty stupid. And so uh, I thought, you know, to, to sort of take my medicine on this one, I would bring in my friend Ivan Ross. He and I play a lot of golf together, and he could tell about one of those sort of really humiliating moments of rage. So the thing about this particular outburst was that it happened in front of our friend Michael. Um, and this round of golf was supposed to be a reunion of sorts because neither of us had actually seen Michael in several years. Um, it was on the third hole, your drive, a three wood, uh, hooked into the road out of bounds. And uh, that means your third shot, again from the tee box, was essentially an instant replay of the first. Um, duck hooked into the road out of bounds. And... Uh, that that's when it happened. Um, and it was so matter of fact, um, you, you, you know, took the club and snapped it over your knee, um, as if to say, you know, like, well, you know, this, this is the only recourse. This has to happen now. I just duck hooked two shots out of bounds. Uh, you threw the club away. Um, and what, what I find particularly funny is that you, you had the presence of mind to immediately turn around and reach way down in the bottom of this barrel trash can to retrieve the head of the club. <laughs> um, and, uh, uh, you actually left the course. You just, you got into a cart, um, and, and hightailed it back to the clubhouse. Michael and I finished that hole probably in silence and then the rest of the round, in you know some some uh, manner of discomfort, and uh, I don't think you've spoken to him since. I think my bigger problem emotionally is sort of becoming, even if it's only in my head, whiny, uh, for lack of a better word, like just like this day's going horribly. Uh, you know, I stink. Like, why am I even out here? Just wasting the hours. Okay, so we both identified this as a goal. We both feel like we are getting closer. The next question is, to what extent do you feel like you're actually getting better? Yeah, and to me, that's where golf is unique among any sport I've played. Uh, you and I both played tennis. I felt when I practiced hard there, the, the success was linear, as in if I went out and put the time in, I would get better, and I did, and I like that about tennis. Golf, I don't feel that about necessarily the same way. I went to the range today and was hooking absolutely everything and could not figure out why. And for me, those, we talk about low moments. Those are really low moments where you go, where is this foundation? Like, where is this foundation that I laid? I mean, you would think that the worst I can play is, is blank, right? 
And so at those times you think I'm not getting any better, but on the other hand, uh, you know, these, this past weekend, I played two rounds and thought I'd played really, really poorly, uh, made a lot of stupid mistakes. Some of my putts were humiliating, like really like, like giving a three-year-old with no touch a putter for the first time. And they put it 12 feet past or, or longer. Uh, but in both rounds, I shot an 89. And then you go, well, I must be getting better because my really bad rounds were nowhere close to 89 before. Um, but I do think golf has a way of, uh, there's like a, a halting stop start measure of progress, nowhere linear at all. It can collapse for brief moments and then come back. And I think that it makes it tricky to know how you're improving. Um, but I think I am, but I can't, I can't pinpoint that I am improving uh, except by the scores, I guess, which is the ultimate metric. I think the tortured metaphor I would use for golf is something that happened yesterday, which was we were driving home from vacation. We pulled off the highway to find a McDonald's and the, high, the McDonald's on ways was like right off the highway. And so I just followed it. And then I made one slight wrong turn <laughs> and then I made another wrong turn to correct that turn. And then I made another wrong turn. And whereas I was literally 100 yards from the McDonald's at one point, I ended up about a mile and a half away. And that's golf. You make these little turns in hopes of addressing a problem and it sends you down these awful paths. And that's the game. I do feel like I'm getting better, but there's there are a million days um, where it does not feel that way. Ah. Son? Gross. Gross. Okay, so we've talked about what it means to us and let's be honest when we set out to do this we had allowed for the possibility that by the time we actually recorded one of us would have broken 80 that has not happened for either of us so when do you think it will happen for you if it does happen you know i've been working hard all through this hot hot summer and i'm somebody who doesn't do great in the heat i think when the cool weather comes i think by the time 2023 is here. I will have two or three really good legitimate chances to do it. And it's going to be a matter of, can I hit the shot under pressure on the 17th or 18th hole? But I'm going to, I'm going to choose to believe in myself that I'm going to accomplish it by the end of this year. How about you, Sam? Well, it's funny. First of all, um, you mentioned like having the shot that you need to execute under pressure. I did ask Brett also about that. And here's what he said. This has happened to me twice. Okay. I am on the 16th tee. And if I, and the holes are relatively uh, benign holes, I need to make three pars uh, to break 80. Um, what would your advice be to, to me or anyone in that situation? You, you gave yourself a landmine right there, as I need to shoot par on the last <laughs> three. You have eliminated any opportunity to make birdie by doing that. Okay. Sure. You are hedging your bet now that par is the best score you're going to make, which is hogwash. You already said it's theory relatively benign, but so is a puppy dog that bites you. Okay. So the thing about it is I would rather you say, okay, how do I get the ball in position to score based on my strengths? Because you still have to stay aggressive. We don't need to get on our, on our heels and hold on. That's where we get in trouble because I can guarantee you, you will regress back to what you fear. So Brett is obviously one type of expert. Another so-called expert on my golf, at least, is my 17-year-old son, Charlie. Unlike me, Charlie is a good player. He broke 80 when he was only 14, and now he blows it past me off the tee, and yep, he's pretty obnoxious about the whole thing. So naturally, I felt compelled to ask him when he thought it would happen for me. You've played enough golf with me. When do you think I will break 80? When you finally make the choice 
to move to the Red Seas. Little That is not the real thing. The real thing is you're basically hitting six irons when I'm hitting nine iron, and it's kind of hard. It's hard for you to catch up, and so that gap can either be bridged by being more consistent with your longer clubs that you're going to have in more often, or by bridging the gap in terms of length and being closer to that my level and level players a little better. Okay. But that's a little insulting, but not entirely wrong either. It's not only insulting, I'm saying you have consistency. You just have to be able to bridge that gap one way or another. As it relates to me, I think um, one of the ways that I'm going to set myself up to do it is by not putting a timetable on it or predicting. I feel like it's going to happen when I least expect it. And that I'm being honest, like I feel like those rounds where you feel great, you have a great range session, you are grooving it, you've got your best shirt. I mean, I've literally thought about, I'm going to break 80. I'm going to post a picture of myself breaking 80. I make sure I'm wearing the right shirt. So it's going to be a day. <laughs> it's going to be a day when I am just not even thinking about it. And I look up and what do you know, I've got a putt for 79 or however it plays out. And so I think that's going to happen. I feel like I've become a good enough player where it's realistic, but I feel like it's going to be a day that probably it makes no sense that I did it then. Local Knowledge is produced by Greg Gottfried. The music for this episode is Good to Go by Josh Woodward. If you like Local Knowledge, and I sure hope you do, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get podcasts. And be sure to check out our weekly golf podcast, The Loop, for insights into gambling, what's going on on tour, and much more. The remarkable thing about the golf course is you're standing on the tee, and it's really hard to not just see all the ways you can screw it up.